Fired Up show starts right now. Welcome, everybody. Welcome back to the Fired Up podcast right here on WJMS Media. And we're glad that you're here. This is Steve. I host the show. And we're going to jump right into it. Uh, We are going to review our COVID statistics, as always. And then we're going to spend the show and kind of talk about Black History Month. We're uh, a little bit more than halfway through the February celebration. And I thought it was time that we get a little update on, you know, black history and specifically as it relates and especially as it relates to the political environment here in the United States. So let's start off with our COVID numbers. Uh, As of this week, we are up to 103 million cases. We've got uh, 1.13 million people who have uh, died from the disease and we've increased to 671 million uh, people who have been vaccinated, uh, either uh, single dose, double dose, or that plus booster. So we continue to make progress, but we still got work to do. Uh, We gotta make sure that we're following the protocols that uh, we know that we need to follow out there. So without further ado, I wanna get into talking about uh, Black History Month Um, particularly in light of all of the uh, political conversations and debates, discussions, arguments, fights, whatever, name-calling that uh, we have seen in the recent months uh, surrounding uh, education in general and education in black history and other things related to people of color in the United States uh, in particular. And of course, we couldn't have that kind of discussion without traveling to uh, what has fast becoming my number one state for drama and stress, uh, Florida. Sorry to all of you family and friends uh, that live in the Sunshine State, but y'all got some work to do down there. So there's an article that came out of CNN uh, over the past week or so, and it was written by Khalil Gibran Muhammad. And uh, it is uh, titled Three Little Letters That Have Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis on the Attack. And uh, it starts off with uh, talking about uh, back in January, Governor DeSantis announced plans to ban the College Board's Advanced Placement African American Studies pilot course in his state. Uh, And by way of background, uh, this pilot course is a, uh, a, a trial set up of an advanced placement African studies course that was, uh, I believe, distributed distributed to uh, some 60 school jurisdictions uh, around the country, uh, of which uh, Florida was one of them. And um, what the it was done by uh, an organization called the College Board, who is responsible for its content, uh, is it has triggered. Uh, Governor DeSantis's administration to uh, number one uh, ban its teaching pending a revision review of the program by the College Board. So you know, in in a move that is widely seen as caving into Governor DeSantis, the College Board uh, revised the course uh, amid the storm of controversy that it called and strong evidence that um, Governor DeSantis's administration had a direct influence on the decision to gut it. 
and what this means is that, sadly, the uh, national education standards uh, have been diminished for this, you know, very important uh, coursework. Uh, so the article goes on, it says, now DeSantis is going a step further, announcing plans to end initiatives focused on diversity, education, and inclusion, frequently, uh, which frequently are grouped under the acronym DEI in public colleges and universities across Florida. Now, what this would do is effectively dismantle uh, the relatively new efforts to address racial inequality in institutions of higher learning in the state, many of which were put in place uh, following protests over the killing of George Floyd uh, by police officers. Uh, DeSantis's I, uh, DEI proposal, or anti-DEI proposal rather, would prohibit all public universities in the state from creating and funding DEI programs and would even block the use of private non-taxpayer funding for these purposes. Uh, his intention, he freely admits, is to dry up resources for existing diversity programs so that they will wither on the vine. Uh, the decision that he's made to zero out DEI programs in Florida uh, is an attack on data-driven methods that have been shown to result in better performance and retention for students of color and a more racially diverse and effective teaching faculty. But the positive effects of these programs are felt far beyond the classroom. Uh, and the article cites that universities in Florida and elsewhere are the very laboratories that show us how to achieve fairer and more inclusive classrooms. They are workplaces that model and test these ideas uh, for the benefit of the broader society. And DeSantis's new policy harms students, administrators, educators, and parents, particularly of people of color, who stand to gain the most when the institutions they find themselves in begin to reflect society's diversity. So the, the upshot of this uh, is that you know, while these programs um, have begun to show results uh, that are positive in terms of their impact on uh, the education process and the delivery of education, again, in institutions of higher learning, uh, colleges and universities, uh, this still has put it into the, the radar and the crosshairs of uh, Governor DeSantis and other conservatives who, like him, uh, want to look at ways to restrict uh, or roll back uh, educational progress that has been made in the areas of racial equality, uh, inequities, and diversity. So, you know, this, this idea that by, by starving these programs of their funding so that they, quote, uh, will wither and die, close quote, uh, that we, that he rather, will find a way to uh, basically eliminate a broader, uh, more in-depth understanding of the issues that we have with diversity and racial equity here in this country. So, you know, this is something that is being closely watched. 
uh, not only by the media as it's received a lot of media coverage, particularly on the conservative side of the roster, um, but also on the progressive and you know, more liberal uh, media outlets as well. Uh, but it also is clearly an attempt to frame future discussions, uh, future availabilities, and you know, future outcomes for uh, students of color, uh, employees of color, and you know, employees in general and students in general. Uh, these initiatives, it, you know, should be noted, these initiatives not only benefit uh, the groups that they are discussing and the, the people uh, who would receive the benefits, they actually have wide-ranging impacts on you know, the, the broader uh, American population, and by that I mean the white population um, here in this country. And you know, that's going to serve kind of as our segue into what I want to spend uh, a good amount, if not the bulk of this uh, podcast going over. And that is the benefits that America receives when uh, people of color and minorities are given the freedom to grow and develop and contribute uh, from their knowledge and expertise to the broader society. So with that in mind, and as we've discussed on this podcast um, uh, many times already, um, when you think about the, the role of uh, people of color in this country, um, but for, for the sake of this discussion, we are going to use the discussion of um, African Americans and you know, uh, enslaved African, formerly enslaved African uh, people uh, to represent the broader minority uh, population. Um, but just for the sake of the discussion, we're going to be talking uh, specifically about uh, former, formerly enslaved uh, Africans that were brought to this country. So you may have heard of the um, 1619 Project, uh, a, a, a controversial uh, book and movie and, and stories that chronicle the first arrival or of enslaved um, Africans, even though history records that there were, uh, you know, uh, Africans uh, captive and free who were here on this continent as early as the 1400s and as early as 1526 uh, in the region specifically that would become the United States. Uh, but the, the 1619 uh, date is significant because it represents a, a dramatic ramp up of the number of enslaved and indentured servant Africans that were brought to this country uh, and uh, discusses the reasons why uh, these people were in fact trafficked to this country. And essentially it was to uh, to bolster and strengthen the profit-making potential um, and exploitation of the resources in this country by Europeans uh, in the early 17th century. Uh, Europeans um, were, were looking for a cheaper 
more plentiful labor source and found them in enslaved Africans uh, after 1619 when a Dutch ship brought 20 Africans ashore at the British colony of Jamestown uh, in what is now Virginia. Uh, and from there, it spread quickly through the American colonies. Though, it's, um, according to an article, it's impossible to give accurate figures. Some historians have estimated that six to seven million enslaved people were imported to the New World during the 18th century alone depriving the African continent of its most valuable resource, its healthiest and ablest men and women, uh, which if you think about the, the Middle Passage and the crossing from Africa uh, to the United States or to America uh, via the, the, the Middle Passage and uh, going through the Caribbean and so forth, um, only the strongest of those uh, individuals survive that voyage. Uh, so even though you know six or seven million people uh, were landed onto the shore, uh, it probably was you know uh, another couple of million that uh, never survived the trip. Um, so that was 1619. What came um, beyond as we kind of look at a timeline was, uh, you know, immediately following the Revolutionary War, uh, circa around 1793, the rural South, the reason, the region where slavery had taken the strongest hold in North America, uh, it faced an economic crisis. Uh, the soil used to grow tobacco, uh, which was then the leading cash crop, uh, was exhausted, while products such as rice and indigo failed to generate much profit. Uh, as a result, the price of enslaved people was dropping, and the continued growth of slavery uh, looked like it, it was uh, at risk. Um, around the same time, uh, there were mechanisms that were being developed to uh, process uh, another American product, which was cotton, uh, uh, which you know was picked largely by hand. Uh, and largely by, you know, enslaved um, African and indentured servants from uh, Africa and Europe and other countries um, to, to create uh, or to gather this product that went to feed the clothing and textile industry both on, on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean, both here in the colonies and also in uh, parts of Europe and so forth. So in 1793, we saw the rise of the cotton industry. Um, another high point, and these are, you know, a, a, a pick of the high points of the history of African Americans in this country. Um, you know, for a more detailed look, you could look to um, uh, information sources such as Eyes on the Prize, uh, the PBS series that chronicles, um, you know, the the first hundred or few hundred years uh, of the United States, um, and so forth, as well as the 1619 Project in in book or video form, and others. Um, in August of 1831, another milestone was uh, called Nat Turner's Revolt, where Nat Turner 
struck fear into the hearts of white Southerners by leading the only effective slave rebellion in U.S. history. Um, from born on a small plantation in Southampton County, Virginia, uh, he inherited a passionate hatred of slavery from his African-born mother and came to see himself as anointed by God to lead his people out of bondage. Uh, and, you know, basing and taking his signal uh, to do this on a solar eclipse in early 1831, uh, he led this uh, revolt uh, and, you know, came, you know, very close to, um, you know, I, I won't say succeeding because he was, you know, obviously surrounded and, and all of that. Um, but he gathered a group of around 75 black people. He, they killed some 60 white people in two days before armed resistance from local white people and the arrival of state militia forces overwhelmed them just outside um, Jerusalem, uh, I believe Virginia. Some 100 enslaved people, including innocent bystanders, lost their lives in the struggle. Turner escaped and spent six weeks um, on the run before he was captured, tried, and hanged. Uh, so, you know, a the 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 taste for freedom and the desire for freedom uh, ran strong. And it was, uh, you know, shortly after that as well that the, it was the birth of uh, abolitionism and the Underground Railroad, uh, which, by as it says by their names, uh, were were an organization uh, that was uh, intended to abolish slavery in the United or the the colonies, uh, soon to be United States or United States, um, and creation of the Underground Railroad, which was a mechanism and process where uh, enslaved peoples and, and others were led on a dangerous journey from areas of the South uh, to uh, safe havens in the northern states of the, of the then United States as well as Canada. Um, and it, from there, they were you know, educated, clothed, given the chance to live a free existence in the northern territories, which were uh, not uh, slaveholding states at the time. This activity and the, the turmoil that it caused did not go unnoticed or unresponded to by the uh, U.S. government. And in 1793, uh, Congress passed the Fugitive Slave Act and uh, tightened codes in most southern states against individuals and organizations that were helping to affect the freeing of enslaved people from the south to the north. Uh, and of course, you know, the most notable of these so-called conductors on the Underground Railroads was Harriet Tubman, uh, who has been uh, very deeply documented in uh, even the U.S. history that does uh, make it through the current sets of uh, uh, filters that are being put in place uh, by people in states such as Florida and Governor DeSantis. Um, in 1857, uh, there was a, uh, a case the, before the U.S. Supreme Court uh, called the Dred Scott case, 
and it was uh, recognized as the delivering a decision in the Scott v. Sanford case, which delivered a resounding victory to Southern supporters of slavery and aroused the ire of Northern abolitionists. Uh, the, the short version of uh, the owner of an enslaved man uh, in the 1830s named Dred Scott had taken him from the slave state of Missouri. Upon his uh, return to Missouri, uh, Scott sued for his freedom on the basis that his temporary removal to free soil had made him legally free. Uh, the case went to the Supreme Court where it was ruled that Scott was an enslaved person, not a citizen, and thus had no legal rights to sue. So this was leading up to an increased level of tension and turmoil between the northern, quote, free states, close quote, and the southern uh, slave-supporting states, uh, which would culminate um, in 1861 uh, with uh, the, the southern states uh, seceding from the Union and the, uh, the start of what would become the Civil War here in the United States. Uh, the summer of 1862, when uh, there was a, a bloody battle at Antietam in Virginia, uh, Lincoln issued what was then an, a preliminary Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st, 1863, where he made it official that enslaved people within any state or designated part of a state in rebellion shall be then, thenceforward, and forever free. Uh, and this uh, essentially freed some three million enslaved people in the rebel states uh, and deprived the Confederacy of the bulk of its labor forces, uh, put international public opinion strongly on the Union side, uh, at that point, some 186,000 black soldiers would join the Union Army uh, by the time the war ended in 1865, uh, of which 38,000 lost their lives, uh, among the total number of dead of more than 620,000. So, you know, it was the, the costliest conflict in American history. Once the end of the Civil War uh, came about uh, the uh, post-slavery South in and around the years of 1865 uh, started uh, the period of Reconstruction. Uh, the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, adopted in 1865, officially abolished slavery, but the question of freed black people's status in the post-war South remained. So, you know, we had this... Uh, this reconstruction going on to restore uh, what was uh, basically destroyed uh, because of the war uh, in, in terms of, of property and so forth and the economic stability of the South. Uh, but what was fast becoming uh, was uh, an impatience with the leniency shown towards former Confederate states uh, by uh, the new president, Andrew Johnson, uh, who acceded to the presidency after Abraham Lincoln was assassinated in April 1865. So now you had kind of the roots of, in, in one sense, kind of the struggle we find ourselves in today. Uh, and, you know, as, as you've listened to what I've gone through so far, uh, I don't think it's, it's difficult 
to uh, see and draw the parallels between uh, that period in American history and what we see uh, transpiring uh, today, uh, perhaps not as uh, dramatically or, or um, you know, uh, hard, hard bitten, but definitely as dangerous as uh, has been shown to have occurred in the late 1860s. Um, so the, you know, other, other events that led uh, up to this, the 15th Amendment to the Constitution, which was adopted in 1870, guaranteed that a citizen's right to vote would not be denied on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. So, you know, during the Reconstruction period, efforts were made to begin to uh, enfranchise um, former enslaved people, former African slaves, uh, into the American system through getting them the vote. Uh, and, you know, this uh, created the next set of turmoil that would uh, assault the, uh, the new republic. And, you know, this led to the rise of several uh, white, so-called white protective societies that arose during the period, the largest of which was the Ku Klux Klan. And their, you know, aim was to uh, disenfranchise or re-disenfranchise black voters by using voter suppression and intimidation, as well as more extreme violence. Again, another parallel we can, we can draw and another dot we can connect into where we are uh, right now. Uh, in 1896, there was a movement, um, you know, as Reconstruction was drawing to a close, um, you know, the, the forces of white supremacy were regaining control from Northerners who moved South and freed black people. Uh, Southern state legislatures began enacting the first segregation laws known as the, quote, Jim Crow laws. Uh, taken from a much-copied minstrel routine written by a white actor who performed often in blackface. The name Jim Crow came to serve as a general derogatory term uh, for black people in the post-Reconstruction South. Uh, by 1885, most Southern states had adopted uh, some or all of the laws requiring separate schools for black and white students, and by 1900, Persons of color were required to be separated from white people in railroad cars and depots, hotels, theaters, restaurants, barbershops, and other establishments. In 1896, the Supreme Court issued its verdict in the Plessy versus Ferguson case that represented the first major test of the meaning of the 14th Amendment's provision of full and equal citizenship to African Americans. By an eight-to-one majority, the court upheld a Louisiana law that required the segregation of passengers on railroad cars, cars. By asserting that equal protection clause was not violated as long as reasonably equal conditions were provided to both groups, the court established that separate but equal doctrine that would thereafter be used for assessing the constitutionality of racial segregation laws. Uh, so again, we, we see where um, the, the lines and, and the dots are starting to line up as we move forward uh, through time to get to where we are today. 
so this, you know, the, the situations we find ourselves in at this point in time, uh, these are not new. The groundwork was laid in the 18, uh, 1800s and continued all the way through the 1900s, uh, as, we'll, as we'll continue um, after we take a short break. So you're listening to Fired Up Podcast right here on the WJMS Media Platform. This is Steve. We'll be right back after a break. Hi, this is Steve, your host on the Fired Up Podcast on WJMS Media. With a little uh, Black History Month factoid for you, uh, are you aware that there have been 11 women who have run for the U.S. presidency in the United States? So we go back to 1968, and although uh, everybody kind of holds as Shirley Chisholm was the first uh, African-American female to run for president, she was actually preceded by Charlene Mitchell, who ran in 1968 uh, as a uh, Communist Party candidate uh, with the running mate Michael Zagrelli. Uh, the platform that she had included plans to fight racial and economic injustice, uh, but she only appeared on the ballot in two states. Shirley Chisholm, who is the most noted uh, African-American female to run for the U.S. presidency, running four years uh, after Mitchell did, uh, and she ran on the Democratic ticket uh, of, uh, for the 1972 presidential race. Uh, additionally, uh, Margaret Wright, uh, who followed uh, Chisholm's headline-making presidential bid. Uh, was a community organizer and civil rights activist. She ran under the People's Party ticket in 1976. Uh, Isabel Masters, educator, uh, started her own political party called Looking Back to run on during the 1984, 92, 96, 2000, and 2004 presidential campaigns. Uh, her five presidential campaigns are the most for any woman in U.S. history. Uh, Lenora Fulani ran for president in 1988. Uh, she uh, appeared on as the first time for a woman and an African-American to appear on every state's ballot. Uh, this helped her win more votes for president than any other woman had previously. She ran as an independent candidate. Monica Moorhead, who was a teacher, uh, ran under the Workers' World Party ticket in 1996, 2000, and 2016. Uh, the Workers' World Party identifies as a Marxist-Leninist party dedicate, dedicated to fighting for social revolution. Floridian Joy Chavis Rocker uh, entered the 2000 presidential race as a Republican, the only African-American uh, of this group to do so. Uh, according to her, we need to recruit a new breed of Republican, as she said. My candidacy will force the Republican Party to look at itself and decide if it's a big tent or not. I guess that's still a work in progress. Carol Mosley Braun, who was the first black woman elected to the United States Senate in 1992, uh, she ran for president as a Democrat in the 2004 presidential election. Uh, she lost the nomination that time to Senator John Kerry. And then former six-term Georgia Congresswoman Cynthia McKinney, 
ran for president as a Green Party nominee in 2008. Uh, she then went on to uh, become an assistant professor at North South University. Peter Lindsay, born uh, in 1984 uh, and an anti-war activist, uh, she didn't meet the age requirements to serve in the role when she ran for president in 2012 on the Party for Socialism and Libertarian ticket. Uh, she quoted and cited Shirley Chisholm as her inspiration. And then we have Kamala Harris, who announced her decision to run for president uh, in January of 2019, having served as uh, San Francisco's district attorney, California's attorney general, and as a U.S. senator. Uh, she kicked off her campaign with high hopes. Uh, she was forced to drop out uh, at the end of the year as she struggled in the polls and her fundraising goals fell short. So those 11 uh, women represent the possibilities that are out there um, as we progress and become you know, uh, more inclusive and more expansive in our political and our social thinking here in this country. So just a little Black History Month uh, mini bolt for you guys. This is Steve. You're listening to the Fired Up podcast right here on WJMS Media. And we're back. We're back here on the Fired Up podcast, picking up where we left off. And uh, as we go through the timeline of African-American history, the high points uh, here in the United States, um, as the 19th century came to an end and segregation uh, was uh, exercising an even stronger hold in the South, uh, many African-Americans saw self-improvement, especially through education as the single greatest opportunity to escape the indignities they had suffered. Uh, among the icons that people of the era looked to uh, were people like Booker T. Washington, uh, who as president of Alabama's Tuskegee Normal and Industrial Institute, he urged black Americans to acquire the kind of industrial or vocational training, such as farming, mechanics, and domestic service, that would give them the necessary skills to carve out a niche for themselves in the U.S. economy. George Washington Carver, who was another formerly enslaved man and the head of Tuskegee's Agriculture Department, uh, helped liberate its South from its reliance on cotton by convincing farmers to plant peanuts, soybeans, and sweet potatoes in order to rejuvenate the exhausted soil of the South. Uh, and as a side note, as we mentioned to peanuts, we send uh, thoughts out to uh, former president, 39th president of the United States, Jimmy Carter, who has entered this week uh, hospice care, uh, who prior to his uh, political career culminating in, as I said, becoming the 39th president of the United States, was a peanut farmer in Georgia. So in, in getting back to our timeline, uh, in 1909, uh, we saw the founding of the NAACP, uh, which was led by uh, the prominent black educator W.E.B. Du Bois. And uh, this was born in the Niagara Movement, which met in 1908 uh, in, uh, Niag in Niagara Falls, Canada. And also uh, Marcus Garvey, who uh, was a black nationalist leader 
Uh, he founded his Universal Negro Improvement Association, or UNIA, U-N-I-A, uh, in Jamaica in 1914, and two years later brought it to the United States. Uh, he was a, uh, in, in opposition to a lot of the principles that were being discussed by Booker T. Washington and George Washington Carver, uh, and there were several uh, debates and uh, back and forths between the leaders. Um, and, you know, he was the subject of frequent criticism by W.E.B. Du Bois of the NAACP uh, and uh, received criticism for his, quote, back to Africa movement. Uh, he also was openly contemptuous of uh, uh, Du Bois and uh, the NAACP in return, at one point claiming that his movement had uh, more than six million followers, uh, which was probably exaggerated. But uh, even his critics admitted that he had uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of a half a million members uh, in 1923 uh, in that time frame. Um, in the 1920s, we moved from uh, sort of a uh, political and sociological resistance uh, to areas of entertainment, which is an area that, uh, you know, African-Americans believed uh, they could achieve success. Uh, ultimately, this led to something known as the Harlem Renaissance uh, in and around the 1920s, uh, which got its start in New York City. Uh, but became, you know, widespread movement in cities throughout the North and West, uh, also known as the Black Renaissance or the New Negro Movement. Uh, it marked the first time that mainstream publishers and critics turned their attention seriously to African-American literature, music, art, and politics. Uh, it uh, demonstrated that, you know, it, it was a new layer of contribution that African-Americans were making to uh, America in the early uh, 1900s. Uh, even though, you know, many of the audiences uh, outside of the uh, black enclaves, such as, uh, you know, New York, specifically Harlem and Chicago and, and other places like that, uh, it also achieved a uh, wide uh, uh liking and a wide following among white audiences as well. As well. Uh, as we moved into the middle 1900s uh, and the breakout of World War II, uh, African Americans were ready to fight for what, you know, President Roosevelt called the four freedoms. Uh, freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. Uh, even though you know, they lacked those uh, freedoms at home. Uh, during the course of the war, more than 3 million black Americans would register for service with some 500,000 seeing action overseas. Uh, so e even though they were from a country that did not see them as uh, equals or, you know, uh, equally capable, uh, they more than proved themselves uh, in World War II with uh, such, uh, you know, activities as the successes of the Tuskegee Airmen who saw combat against German and Italian troops, 
flew more than 3,000 missions and served as a great source of pride for many black Americans. Uh, they were, you know, led by um, their commander, Captain Benjamin O. Davis Jr., uh, later, who later would become uh, one of the first African-American generals um, and, you know, achieved, you know, recognition uh, in Europe and in other parts of the world while still suffering under the yoke of segregation and Jim Crow when they returned home. Uh, sports was another area where the contributions of African-Americans uh, came uh, more to the forefront. Uh, in 1947, Jackie Robinson became the first uh, black player to play in the major baseball leagues, uh, otherwise known as uh, crossing the color line. And he, uh, you know, played his first game with the Dodgers on April 15th, 1947, um, you know, a earning several records that year, including Rookie of the Year honors. Over the next nine years, uh, he batted a uh, .311 batting average and led the Dodgers to six league championships and one World Series victory. Yet still, he you know, was, like many uh, African Americans at the time, still uh, burdened by the, the weight and, and problems of racism, segregation, and Jim Crow laws while here in the South. Um, in other things, as we cross into the middle of the 19th century, in 1954, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court delivered its verdict in Brown v. Board of Education, ruling unanimously that racial segregation in public schools violated the 14th Amendment's mandate of equal protection of the laws of the U.S. Constitution to any person within its jurisdiction. This landmark verdict reversed the separate but equal doctrine the court had established with Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896, in which it determined that the equal protection was not violated as long as reasonably equal conditions were provided to, bro to both groups. In the Brown decision, Chief Justice Earl Warren famously declared that separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. So, you know, here we now see African Americans uh, starting to accrue uh, some of the political victories and, and some of the legal victories that would lay the groundwork for a lot of the uh, things that we are going through here. Um, the, the history of our people in the United States, you know, was marred with uh, tragedies, as we all well know. Um, in August 1955, uh, a 14-year-old black kid from Chicago named Emmett Till uh, was uh, brutally uh, killed and uh, his body was, was desecrated in, in numerous ways uh, simply under the, uh, the allegation that he had uh, whistled or made some type of uh, sexist uh, remarks to a white woman uh, that was in an elevator with him. The woman's husband and his half-brother uh, dragged Emmett Till from his great-uncle's house in the middle of the night. Uh, he was beaten, his body was mutilated, he was shot several times, and his body was thrown into the Tallahatchie River. 
uh, they the the two men confessed to kidnapping Till, but were acquitted of murder charges by an all-white, all-male jury after barely barely an hour of deliberations. Uh, so the the Till murder and subsequent treatment uh, with the justice system again shows a a stark parallel to you know recent news stories you know one thinks of uh, uh, George Fo- George Floyd and um, you know others that just showed the mistreatment of you know black people uh, and and people of color in general uh, here in the United States and the unfair treatment uh, of the justice system in in some of these cases uh, 1955 saw uh, what is considered the birth of the civil rights movement uh, post uh, Emmett Till incident. Um, Rosa Parks, riding a city bus in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, was told to give up her seat to a white man. Uh, According to the report, she refused and was arrested for violating the city's racial segregation ordinances. Uh, that mandated that black passengers sit in the back of public buses and give up their seats for white riders if the front seats were full. So, you know, the the arrest of uh, Ms. Parks led to the organization of a boycott of the city's municipal bus company uh, by the Montgomery, Montgomery Improvement Association, which was led by a young pastor named Martin Luther King Jr. And, you know, since African-Americans made up 70% of the bus company's riders at the time, and the great majority of Montgomery's black citizens supported the bus boycott, uh, its impact was immediate. Found guilty of obstructing uh, the operation of a business, uh, King appealed the decision, but the boycott stretched on for more than a year the bus company struggled to avoid bankruptcy. On November 13, 1956, in Browder v. Gale, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld a lower court's decision declaring the bus company's segregation seating policy unconstitutional under the 14th uh, Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Uh, King called off the boycott on December 20th, and Rosa Parks, uh, now known as the, quote, mother of the civil rights movement, close quote, would be one of the first to ride on the newly desegregated buses. In 1957, uh, a uh, high school in Little Rock, Arkansas, became the center of national focus when uh, the governor of the state at the time uh, made his uh, desegregation platform, which was part of his reelection campaign, and after the federal court ordered the deseg- desegregation of Central High School, located in the state capital of Little Rock, Governor Favis called out the Arkansas National Guard to prevent nine African-American students from entering the school. He was later forced to call off the guard, and in the tense standoff that followed, TV cameras captured footage of white mobs converging on the Little Rock Nine, as they became known, outside of the high school. For millions of viewers throughout the country, the unforgettable images provided a vivid contrast between the angry forces of white supremacy and the quiet, dignified resistance of African-American students. 
President Eisenhower federalized the state's National Guard and sent 1,000 members of the U.S. Army's 101st Airborne Division to enforce the integration of Central High School. So the students entered the school under heavily armed guard, marking the first time since Reconstruction that federal troops have provided protection for black Americans against racial violence. Uh, although the governor closed all of Little Rock's high schools in the fall of 1958 rather than permit integration, a federal court struck down this act and four of the nine students returned under police protection after the schools were reopened in 1959. Uh, in the same year, 1958, we had the first uh, interracial uh, couples legally married in the United States, and uh, their union marked a pivotal moment in marriage rights for mixed-race families. Um, at 2 a.m. on July 11, 1958, Mildred Jeter was lying next to her husband, Richard Loving, when the police began knocking on their door, demanding to know about the nature of their relationship. At the time, interracial marriage was illegal in Virginia, and the newlywed couple were guilty of breaking the law. Richard spent the night in prison, and his sister had to pay a $1,000 bond for uh, his release. Mildred, however, spent three nights in a small woman's cell and was released to her father. The couple was then given a choice, spend 25 years in prison or leave Virginia. They chose exile and abandoned the state for nine years, making periodic trips back to visit family while trying to avoid being detected. So we'll break our journey uh, on the timeline of uh, African-American history in the United States uh, right here. We're going to pick it up with part two coming in next week's podcast, where we're going to open up with uh, the 1960s, which was probably the most tumultuous, most uh, significant and most uh, foundational for much of the uh, political and social and economic struggles that we are going through uh, today here in the United States. So we'll pick this up. Make sure you uh, tune into next week's podcast to pick up part two of African-American history in the United States here on Fired Up. Right now, we're going to uh, turn the page a little bit and go to uh, some other uh, history. Uh, specifically, we're going to look at how um, black Americans have influenced uh, everyday lives here in this country, uh, not through what they say, but through what they build. So uh, we'll get started with that right now. So if someone asked you to name uh, five inventions that were uh, created by African-American inventors uh, in this country, could you? Well, we're going to go through and hit the high points in a list of more than 120 things you probably didn't know were created by black inventors. I'll post a list to the article on the Facebook page, but as I said, I'm going to go through um, and try and get through as many as possible, but we're going to hit the high points uh, of 120 things that were invented by black Americans that you may not have known about. Uh, number one was something called the folding cabinet bed, what might be uh, more accurately described or as it is described today as uh, a sofa bed 
you know, or a fold-out bed. Uh, and this was invented in 1885 by a woman named Sarah Good, and she was also the first black woman to receive a U.S. patent. She came up with an industry-changing idea uh, that was intended to bring more residents uh, with limited living space into her store. Uh, here's one, and I guarantee, I'm pretty sure you're going to be surprised at this. So the next time you're watching that sporting uh, event and you reach over for that, that, those uh, bag of potato chips, uh, thank George Crumb, African-American who was working at a chef at a resort in New York. A customer complained that his French fries weren't good, and he, in, in an irritated fit, he cut the potatoes as thinly as possible, fried them until they were burnt crisps, and threw a generous handful of salt on top. The rest is history. Um, of course, uh, you may have heard or learned in school that the gas mask was invented by Garrett Morgan, uh, which was uh, the first where uh, the, the hood went over the head, featured tubes connected to uh, a device that filtered out smoke and provided fresh oxygen. Philippi Downing invented what is called a protective mailbox, uh, basically the uh, forerunner of the mailboxes we have now where you have the outer door uh, that can open in an inner safe safety door to prevent parcels from being uh, stolen. Charles Richard Drew. So the next time you, or the, the first time, or whenever that you are uh, looking at some type of surgery where uh, you need to have either a blood transfusion or blood uh, added back into your system, uh, Charles Drew uh, was the person who discovered the method of separating red blood cells from plasma and then storing the two components separately. This process allowed uh, blood to be stored for more than a week, which was the maximum at that time. And he received uh, patents for that. Uh, getting the wrinkles out of your clothes. Uh, African-American woman invented uh, or improved on the design of the ironing board. An African-American nurse named Mary Van Britten Brown devised an early security unit for her own home. She and her husband took out a patent for the system the same year, and they were awarded the patent three years later. In 1969, home security systems commonly used today took various elements from her design. Another one you may have heard about in school, uh, the traffic lights that we have now, you know, red, yellow, green, uh, was invented by Garrett Morgan in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, after he witnessed a severe car accident at an intersection in the city. Uh, the next time you go shopping and you are getting some uh, refrigerated groceries or frozen food, you can thank Frederick McKinley Jones, who created the roof-mounted cooling system used to refrigerate goods on trucks during extended transportation in the mid-1930s. He received a patent for his invention in 1940 and co-founded the U.S. Thermal Control Company, later known as Thermoking. Uh, a black man named Alexander Miles took out a patent in 1887 for a mechanism that automatically opens and closes uh, elevator doors. Uh, the 
the microphone that I am using to record this, as well as others, uh, was invented by Dr. James E. West, who co-invented the foil electric microphone, which was less expensive to produce than the typical used condenser microphones. And for all you techies out there, you can thank Mark Dean for co-inventing the color monitor. Uh, without that, we'd still be typing and reading things in a disgusting-looking green color. And it, it isn't all tech and, and inventions. Uh, Lonnie Johnson, uh, an aerospace engineer for NASA, he was the inventor of the super soaker. Mary Davison invented both the tissue holder while disabled from multiple sclerosis. And of course, you know, we know that George Washington Carver was the one who invented peanut butter. George T. Sampson created the clothes dryer in 1892. For those, you know, who still, you know, mechanically sweep their floors, who don't have, you know, a, a robot doing it, uh, Lloyd Ray uh, developed and invented and patented the dustpan. A folding chair created by, Jane, by John Purdy, uh, used at picnics and school graduations everywhere. Here's one for all you duffers out there. Uh, the golf tee was invented by Dr. George Grant. And the ice cream scooper, Alfred L. Crawl, invented the ice cream scooper, allowing kids to have larger scoops than spoon fills. Yay, yay, yay. Uh, <laughs> Joseph A. Smith uh, helped dads everywhere keep their grass green while allowing his kids a fun toy to jump around with was his, his invention called the lawn sprinkler. Thomas Elkins, you can thank him for that porcelain throne in your bathroom uh, as he invented the modern toilet. Thomas W. Stewart invented the mop. A reversible baby stroller. What that means is one where the seat, the seat back flips back to front, uh, was invented by William Richardson, and also had independent wheels. All right, here's one I'll throw in there. Um, William Dorsey Swan is highly regarded as the first drag queen in the United States. Just throwing that out there. So, I mean, there's a, there's a whole lot of things. Um, a serving tray walker, which, uh, you know, basically the push cart uh, that you, you put there. Airplane, airplane propellers were uh, designed and, and refined by James S. Adams. A bis biscuit cutter, that round uh, circular cutter that uh, makes those great biscuits. The coin changer was James A. Bauer. Oh, by the way, the biscuit cutter was A.P. Ashbourne. The rotary engine was invented by Andrew Beard. And again, these are all African-American. Stainless steel pads was courtesy of Alfred Benjamin. The torpedo discharger, H. Bradbury, developed that meth mechanism uh, used and and. You know, still in use in, in an advanced form on today's submarines. Uh, disposable syringe was invented by Phil Brooks. Uh, cotton planter and a corn planter 
was invented by Henry Baer. Street sweepers were uh, invented by C.B. Brooks. Uh, the horseshoe was invented by Oscar Brown. The train alarm, R.A. Butler. Like I said, there, there's more than 120 of these. I will you know, post this on the website. Uh, lotions and soaps, uh, George Washington Carver. For those of you uh, fishers out there, automatic fishing reel, George Cook. The printing press, W.A. Lavalette. Uh, every time you lick an envelope uh, when you're getting ready to mail a letter, you can thank F.W. Leslie for the envelope seal. The fire extinguisher was invented by Tom J. Marshall. A hairbrush by Lyda Newman. The blimp, J.F. Pickering. The fountain pen and the hand stamp were invented by W.B. Purvis. The process for refining sugar was invented by N. Rilieu. And the cellular phone was invented by Harry Sampson. Artists like Slash and Prince, uh, Jimi Hendrix, and others can thank Robert Fleming Jr., the inventor of the guitar. On those hot nights in the summertime, you can thank Frederick M. Jones for his invention, the air conditioning unit. And Mr. Jones also gave us the two-cycle gas engine, the internal combustion engine, and starter generator, and refrigeration controls. And one of the, probably one of the most prolific black American inventors, Granville T. Woods, invented the telephone transmitter, the electric cutoff switch, the relay instrument, the telephone system, an electromechanical brake, a galvanic battery, and the roller coaster. And did you know that the space shuttle retrieval arm was invented by black American William Harwell? So those are just a few of the inventions that have come from the minds of uh, black Americans over the, uh, the years uh, here in America. Uh, just think of all the things you would not be able to do if these uh, individuals had not exercised that brain power and brought these products uh, to market, to design by design and, and patented them. So, you know, the next time you hit a golf shot straight down the fairway, you can thank, you know, a, a black person. Uh, or when you get that wrinkled shirt and get it all nice and, and pressed out, neat and smooth, you can thank an African-American. Uh, so we are not just in this country. We are a part of this country. So when we talk about how African-American history is American history, this is part of what we're talking about. The contributions made by our forebearers into what American society and standard of living and, and all of the things that we take for granted every day that were invented by you know, African-Americans in this country. So, and it's on that positive note, we will uh, wrap up our podcast for this week. Remember, we're going to pick up on part two of our uh, Black History Timeline in next week's episode. So please make sure that you keep it locked and get that. Subscribe to uh, WJMS Media so that you know when it's coming out. Uh, I want to thank you all for listening, for enjoying and, and participating in the journey with me. 
Uh, please stay safe as always. Uh, COVID is still out there and the new variant is even more contagious than uh, previous variants. So please protect yourself, your family, your community, and your country. That's going to do it. Uh, hope to uh, join you all again. I look forward to having another conversation with you in seven days. Mm-hmm.